Good morning, everyone. Let's open with a word of prayer. And I think Steve will maybe chase away that cardinal for us up there. (laughs) He's on the front window today, or she. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to hear your word preach and proclaim. Lord, I ask that you would um, just open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and close our ears to any air that I may speak. Lord, as we continue our series on 1 John, um, as, as we contemplate what it is to dwell in the light and not in the darkness, as we contemplate this morning what it means to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, I ask that you would impress upon us this morning, are there any brothers and sisters in Christ that we have ought with, that we are struggling with? Who is it that we have issue with, that we've kind of swept it under the rug? We don't want to deal with it. Lord, it's so easy to do that, and yet you've called us towards reconciliation. It's not easy, and yet being a grown-up Christian means we've got to do it. Lord, I pray that you would show us that, and then you would show us the path forward this morning. Expose our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, this, uh, this passage I don't like. There's a lot of passages in Scripture I don't like. A lot of passages convict me. Um, it's just been an interesting series as I get through to this part. So I've also been having a... Um, you know, my back's been flaring up again, and uh, it's been interesting because last week I wrote it on one hour of sleep, not, not the best way to write a sermon, I tell you, uh, and yet God worked through it, and so I'm always kind of curious to see what I'm going to come out with. This week I had at least sleep, so it was good. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see what God comes out with this week too, but um, I remember last week, from what I remember preaching, we, we left off last week looking at Jesus's teaching in the gospel of John and how the world would hate us as it hated him first, right? And that's kind of an interesting passage, and I think that we as Christians don't really understand that if in, in the first world, because we've not really undergone a lot of persecution. It's, and it's really difficult to grasp in times of peace. But it's not really that difficult if you've been a Christian who's made a difference. If you start to preach or you start to reach out or you start to make a difference in ministry. And, and if you have done that, if you've begun to make a difference, if you've begun to do a ministry for Jesus, if you've begun to do outreach for Jesus, if you've begun to, in your workplace, begun to share with people, or um, not, not like why you're working, but I mean like begun to uh, outreach and people have begun to come to Jesus. Or you'll see like if you're speaking to somebody and, and you're really kind of making inroads, some how, some way, you'll begin to get pushback. And you begin to wonder why you're getting this pushback. What is going on? It seems like there's a, there's a, um, it always inevitably comes. If a church begins to make a difference, then there, be, then there comes a spiritual attack. So why is that? Now, a lot of believers don't believe that uh, the world will hate us. A lot of churches don't believe that the world will hate us, and they don't because they never experience this difficulty. They never experience this pushback. But one of the reasons we don't is because we're not really making a difference. And that's what I challenged us to think about last week. I think that a lot of us don't experience it because we never share our faith, we never talk about Jesus. 
We're not out there making a difference with the poor. We're not out there with the needy. And by needy, I mean uh, there's all kinds of people who need help. It doesn't necessarily mean the poor. There's all kinds of people who are struggling in life in various ways. There are students over here at Bob Jones who need tutoring. Uh, They're coming from areas where they have learning disabilities, or there are uh, mothers that are single mothers that need help with their children. I mean, there's all kinds of folks who need help, and they don't necessarily have to be poor. So that's what we mean in the gospel by needy. But if you're out there pushing and making a difference, you're going to naturally get a pushback. And so oftentimes the church isn't really being bothered by anybody around them because they aren't really making a difference in their communities whatsoever. And in this case, we won't experience persecution because we aren't making ripples. We aren't noticeable. For example, uh, when I was uh, a youth minister in uh, St. Clement's, it was a church right on the border, and we used to go over into Mexico. We used to build houses. We used to do a lot of really cool things in Juarez, and Juarez has become an excessively violent town. But I remember reading about several missionaries that were killed in the mountainous region down in Mexico. And the reason that they were killed was because they had begun to make really big inroads for Christ in those communities. Many people started coming to Jesus. And when they started coming to Jesus, they stopped taking drugs and they stopped working with the drug dealers, with the cartels. And the cartels were losing employees. And because they were losing their employees and druggies, they killed the missionaries. Can you imagine? So the church was making inroads, and so it had a counterattack. And you'll see that happen to missionaries all over the region. When missionaries began making too many inroads in China, China shut them down. When it happens in, 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 in Muslim countries, Muslims find out about it, and Muslims shut them down. When it happens anywhere else, Muslim, uh, people will shut them down. But it happens here too. When you're reaching out, when you're making a difference, family members will try to shut you down. Other people will try to shut you down. And it won't make sense. Why in the world will people try to shut you down? It'll come from all kinds of areas. The kingdom of Satan or sin hates the people of God, and that's what Jesus said. Scripture describes it this way, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. You follow that? So what, what Paul's saying here is you have a smell about you, right? You have a smell about you. And the smell comes from the Holy Spirit within you. If you're a believer, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit gives you a smell. And that smell is beautiful to some people, and it really stinks to other people, right? So certain people have migraine issues, right? And they can't handle if you have perfume on. And so a person with perfume might smell wonderful to everybody around them. When a lady walks in with perfume, and some gentleman may, wow, that may smell really good. But a person with a really bad migraine issue might smell, that might smell horrible. Why? Because when you walk in, it might give them a massive headache, right? And that's what's going on. You give people of Satan, the people of the dark side, a massive headache. It's the reaction, and those people find you repulsive. 
not because of you, but because of him who is within you. I had this experience at a, at a social party in East Texas. I was a young youth minister just out of, out of Virginia Tech, and, and I was going to this youth ministry school, and I was a youth minister in East Texas, Corsicana, East Texas. Never forget, it was a small town. It was an oil town. And so I'd been there, and I went, and I was invited to this party, of this swank party. Uh, well, it was a small town swank party, but it was a swank party. And so I went to this party, and, uh, it, and now I'm from the D.C. area, so I'd been to parties uh, and political parties and stuff like that, and so I was used to a different kind of swank party, but whatever, this was a swank party, and I, um, I enjoyed it, and I don't remember much about it. It was kind of an, uh, anyway, it was a long time ago, and I don't remember a whole lot about it, but the people there were pretty nice, and I remember walking up and seeing an acquaintance because I was new to the town, and, um, and I walked up to this group, and I saw the acquaintance, and I went over to say hi, so I said hi, and the person introduced me as a youth minister at a local church. And in the party, one of the gentlemen was an upper-class person in the town. I think he was an oil person or whatever. And he started to go off on me, uncontrollably going off on me about God and everything about God, to the point where everyone around us was embarrassed. And I think the gentleman was also embarrassed, but he couldn't stop himself. Now, this was an educated man. He was not usually out of control. Everyone was shocked. I hadn't said anything. He didn't know me from Adam, and yet he went off on me. Now, I found this from time to time when I'm wearing my collar. I found this reaction from time to time just being a pastor. Why is that? Why did this person go off? Because I had the stench of death to him. And I've learned that over time. You as a Christian are going to have the stench of death upon you. If you're living it, if you're walking it, it's just going to happen. And that's what Jesus was talking about in our gospel passage. The Apostle John speaks about why this will happen in his epistle, 1 John 2, 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And what John is saying is, look, the reason that this is happening is that before Jesus came, the darkness thought they had won. If you think about this, so there's a... there's. There's a debate on Revelation about the thousand years reign, right? Is the thousand years reign going to happen towards the end of time, or is John talking about the thousand years reign before Jesus came? Because before Jesus came, there was a little flickering light left in the world, and Satan had the entire world under dominion except for a small remnant in Israel, a small, tiny remnant. So if you're amillennialist, like no millennium, no, no millennium, right? We're in the millennium. So you believe the millennium started. You believe what Peter said in, um, in Acts chapter 2, that these are the last days. And so it started right then, right? There's all kinds of different views. I'm not going to get into the whole Revelation view. But if you uh, believe that it started right then, then you believe that before that, Satan had conquered the world, or he thought he had conquered the world, and there was this last little flicker of light. That's what we celebrate during Advent, this last little flicker of light. And he thought he had won. And regardless of what you think on the millennium, he still thought he had won. 
And now Jesus comes, and he enters into the world. This is the already, not yet. And he enters into the world, and all of a sudden, he rises from the dead, and now the kingdom gets reversed. And not only does the kingdom get reversed, it spreads out of Israel. And now it's spreading all over the globe, and he can't stop it. And that's what happens. That's what John's talking about. The kingdom of darkness feels it slipping away. And Satan is doing everything he can to try to stop the kingdom of God from spreading. That's what he's doing. He's trying everything that he possibly can to stop the kingdom of God from spreading. He feels like he's losing. Now, we're not in the mind of Satan. We don't, think it, we don't know if Satan thinks that ultimately he's going to win. Is he that deceived or not? But we do know that he feels that it's slipping away and so that he's trying to stop it. Things have dramatically changed with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And this sparking of hatred between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light then is understandable. And it, we, we know this from the beginning of Genesis, and we know that it's refired up in a new way with the coming of Jesus Christ. But what is not understandable, John says, is that the operating system of the kingdom of darkness should slip over into the people of the kingdom of light. And that's what he's saying in 1 John chapter 2. He's saying you should not function as the people of darkness. We are supposed to operate in love, not in hatred. We are specifically supposed to function in agape and philia. You as Christians, he's saying, are supposed to function in unconditional love and brotherly love, not in hatred. And that's what he's saying in verse 9 and 10, 2, 9 and 10. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So this is one of those passages where God really gets real, right? In this passage, he just puts it to us. And this is why a lot of folks don't like this passage. This is one of those troubling passages, right? So if you grew up in a church where you're once saved, always saved, and you walk down that aisle, and that's all you have to do. I got me a little bit of Jesus, right? I just walked down that aisle. I said, oh, I am saved, and I can walk out, and now I can live my life the any way I want to do it. This passage stinks. It does this and wakes you up. It smacks you around. I don't like it. It puts you to the test. Do you hate another believer? I want you to think about that. Do you hate another believer? If you say you love God and yet hate a fellow believer, you are still a pagan. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're a pagan. Okay, 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 okay. You say, there's got to be an exception. We're always looking for an exception. We're Americans. Americans always want a way out. We have lawyers. What's the way out, you say? There is an exception. What's that exception? If you've just had something happen, and it's just, the hate's just creeped in, and you haven't had time to reconcile and work through it, okay, okay, okay. You're a backslide, you're struggling with it. When you're first struggling with it, that's okay. What John's saying, though, is you can't live into this. 
If someone's wronged you and that hate is welling up and you're first struggling with it, okay. But you can't let that sink in and live into it. That is not the mark of a believer. The mark of a believer is agape, unconditional love. And that means as you love the least of these, you love me. Not the most of these. I don't get to look at my favorite person and say, man, I love Charlie. He's my favorite person. And that's the way I love. But I don't know, uh, Denny, he's really ticked me off. I don't love him. I'm just going to ignore it. It's as I love Denny, not as I love Charlie. Just picking on you, brother. I've got to love both equally. It has to happen that way. We all want to say, look, I want to blow over one, the person I don't love. Maybe he's wronged me. Maybe he took my milk money, right? He did something to me. He gave me a wedgie or something. And we're just angry and we can't get over that. But we got to let it go. He gets it from this passage. And this one is even rougher. And we read it this morning. From Jesus, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So the lack of forgiveness makes a mockery of what Jesus did for you at the cross. I mean, that's what he's saying. If you forgive others their trespasses, I'm going to forgive you. But if you don't forgive their sins, neither is your heavenly Father going to forgive your sins. I mean, let that sink in for a second. Forgive as I have forgiven you, is what Jesus said. If you don't forgive others their sins, I'm not going to forgive your sins. That's heavy. That is heavy. It's, it's what Jesus did for you. He forgave everything you did and took it to the cross. And by you not forgiving, you're rejecting everything that Jesus did. That's what he's saying. Look, I get it. Sometimes people do really horrible things to us, the worst of things. And sometimes those people are believer, and it's hard to forgive when we're deeply wrong. Sometimes it's more than just a wedgie, right? Sometimes it's really bad things. Sometimes really dark things happen to you. And this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Some of us have experienced some really dark stuff, right? You've experienced abuse. You've experienced attacks. You've been robbed, right? You've had divorces. You've experienced racism. You've experienced deep abiding insults. You've had family members break off and leave you. I had a friend who experienced a murder in his family. There are things that happen to us that are horrific. And yet those things too need 
to be forgiven. How do we do that? How do we do that? Very difficult. We give it to God and we let the Holy Spirit work within us and, and do it. And this is the difficult part. I've had to do that too. I've had some dark things that happened to me that I had to be forgiven. And one of the things I had to do was walk through that with God. And I had to ask forgiveness and then I had to help ask him to help me forgive and I had to forgive every day. And so sometimes it's a process of asking and, 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 and forgiving every hour, right? I forgive every hour and I do that every day. And then eventually I was forgiving every second hour and then every third hour and then every day and then every second day and then every week and then every month and then it was gone. Sometimes these things are dark and we have to get them out of it. But if we don't get it out of us, it turns into bitterness and bitterness turns into poison and it poisons everything we are. It destroys us. It eats us from the inside out. It is corrosive. It is a battery acid. It eats you and it destroys all your relationships. It corrodes everything. It changes you from the inside out. Have you ever met a person who has never forgiven anybody? Have you ever met a person who is destroyed by bitterness? They might be bitter at someone who's not you, but eventually they're bitter at everyone and everything. You've seen it. If you haven't seen it and you're young, talk to some of the older folks. They've all seen it. It's not pretty. And so Jesus says, get it out. Get it out of you. Now, God understands what it is to struggle with this. He understands forgiveness. He has forgiven more times than we could possibly forgive ever. He's forgiven through the centuries, through the millennia. He's forgiven soul-crushing sin. And yet, our Lord also modeled it personally. When He was on earth, He forgave. He forgave really bad sins, folks. Think about this. He models the forgiveness of Peter, who denied Him Three times as he's getting crucified, tortured. Peter's so bad that he denies him three times, once to a little girl. Not only to adults, a little girl comes up to Peter. So cowardly is Peter at that moment that when a little girl says, do you know Jesus, he can't even stand up to her. When Jesus is on the cross dying, all of his friends, save John, abandon him. Can you imagine? And Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives those who are spitting on him, beating him, torturing him, and crucifying him, and mocking him while he is dying. He understands forgiveness, I would submit. Forgiveness is tough work when we're wrong deeply. But for the most part, let's be honest, Christian. Most Christians hate their brothers and sisters over trivial stuff. Most conflicts in the church that blow out of control or over issues when it boils right down to it have to do with our own spiritual immaturity. Nine times out of ten, what I see and what most pastors in this town and what most pastors in this country see is that Tommy is mad at Johnny over an issue that is typically not a big deal. Now don't Get me wrong, Johnny may have been wronged at first, and it may have been somewhat of a big deal, but Johnny will not go to Tommy and deal with it. Johnny has been wronged, and he just lets it fester. 
and he either sweeps it under the rug until it gets so big that he just leaves because he can't handle it, or he just blows up and starts gossiping about Tommy and destroys Tommy's reputation. Or, but he, what he won't do is go talk to Tommy. He'll do anything in the world but talk to Tommy and reconcile it. Nine times out of ten, this is what we see. Relationships get destroyed because they fail or we fail to want to talk and reconcile with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is this? It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be a big deal to reconcile. I mean, for any reasonably mature Christian following Scripture. Scripture says this in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If your brother sins against you, your sister, go and tell him his fault. Now, was that an option that Jesus says? Does he say think about it or does he say do it? In the Anglican church, and really in any church that has this communion, when are we supposed to do this? When are we reminded and during communion? When? Before we take communion, we are reminded twice. Once when we pass the peace, which will be coming back shortly, and the other time when we fence the table. You who are in love and charity, you're in love and charity, you're connected with your neighbors, you don't have anything against them, you can come to the table. If you're not in love and charity with your neighbors, don't come to the table. Go and reconcile. This is where we get it from. This in Matthew 6, 14 and 15 and John, we get it from Scripture. You shouldn't come before communion. You shouldn't come for it if you are struggling with your brother and sister, if you haven't reconciled, if you're not at peace. And yet I see Christian after Christian who thinks they've been wrong violate this command. This is the basis of it. If you believe your brother or sister has sinned against you, you are commanded to go and reconcile, commanded, not given the option. If you're doing that, if you don't reconcile, you are in sin. If you're taking communion while you're not at peace, while you're unreconciled, you are a liar. You're lying to God and yourself and violating the very act of communion. You perpetuate the division of the body and you fail to act in love. And the reason God asks us to do this is that reconciliation brings healing and restoration and unity and it bonds us together in agape and is one in Jesus Christ. And this is what communion is about. Failure to do this builds the pattern in yourself of not only living a lie, but of glossing over broken relationships. And if you let broken relationships keep festering, eventually they can lead to bitterness and to hatred and to destruction of the unity of the body. Jesus and John say this is a sign of something deeply wrong in your spiritual life. And this is why we emphasize it so much. Jesus and John say this is the sign of something deeply wrong. This is why it's a very powerful sign to any Christian. You should never be embarrassed to do this.
ever. This means I'm accepting a prayer today. I can't take it. I see Christians embarrassed to do this. Never, ever be embarrassed to do that. It's a sign of spiritual strength. Hatred for a brother or sister in Jesus is a mark of a non-believer. You simply cannot have that and be of Jesus. You might flash that sinful feeling for a time, but you can't actually have that dwelling within you. The deep and abiding problem of which we all need to be aware is the pattern of avoiding reconciliation. It's the pattern of it, folks. It doesn't mean you can't struggle with it. Hear me there. You can struggle with it, but it's the pattern of it. You need to be above that. You have to give that to Christ when you're struggling with it. You have to change. You have to live into forgiveness. You have to give it to Jesus. If you're newer to the faith, you should expect this to be something you need to work on. But if you've been a believer for a while and you realize you're massively struggling in this area, that's something different altogether. You need to take stock of what's going wrong in your life. Where have you missed the boat? Why are you struggling with this? Why are you not reconciling with other believers? You need to be stronger than that. There's a point when you have to pull up your big boy or big girl pants and get about reconciling with other believers. You need to teach that to younger believers. You need to teach that pattern, but you need to be about that yourself. If you have odd, if you are struggling with other believers or sisters in Christ, I mean other men or brothers and sisters in Christ, go and reconcile. Be about that. I know it's tough. It takes maturity. It takes vulnerability. It takes risk. It's difficult. You're going to have to sit down and say what you think. And you're also going to have to listen and hear the response. And be willing to accept the fact that maybe you were in the wrong. Maybe you misunderstood. And if you can't reconcile and you can't figure it out, you bring somebody else to help referee. Or you come to us and help it. But be willing to forgive. Go with charity and love not condemnation and wagging your finger. The goal here is to reconcile. The goal here is for unity. The goal here is to grow. The goal is not to pick up your toys and go somewhere else where you're going to find better people because the same problem is going to happen again and again and again. The goal is to grow. The goal is to love. The goal is to be a body. Amen?